You are listening to the Enormo Cast. At Black Diamond, the process of building gear begins and ends with climbing. A need drives an idea, and that idea is tweaked, tested, and refined in a never-ending cycle. Use, design, engineer, build, repeat. Guided by this philosophy, Black Diamond has been making equipment for the full spectrum of climbing pursuits for more than 25 years. From the boulders to the big walls and everything in between, Black Diamond makes gear and apparel you can trust when it matters. Visit BlackDiamondEquipment.com to check out the latest all-new gear, as well as a fine-tuned collection of apparel, and get the latest stories, photos, and videos on their blog, Black Diamond Experience. How's that for a process commercial? Eh? We gotta get Listen, uh, uh, where are you playing in town? You, are you playing here? We're doing the, uh, the Normo Dome, whatever it is. It's terrific. Oh, it's yeah, a big place. That's, out. Out That's a big nice. place. You sold What's it that out. I'll see. You really should. Look, you better get up there before you panic. Those pens are loose. You're very good. I have really enjoyed climbing them with you. We'll make it. I don't think so. But we shall continue with style. Good weather, bad weather. Now or later, anytime. Today's show is brought to you by Black Diamond Equipment with support from Maxim Ropes. And don't forget, you can go to bonfirecoffee.com and enter Normo at checkout to get a discount on great coffee. And you can go to pureholds.com and enter Normo to get a discount on great Colorado-made climbing holds. Both the coffee and the holds will give you the power to crush your enemies and see them driven before you. And now back to the show. Hello and welcome to the Normalcast. This is your host, Chris Kalous. It is about 8 o'clock Mountain Standard Time on January 5th, 2015, the first episode of the new year coming at you. Episode 72, a conversation with Enormo Nation favorite Kelly Cordes. And Kelly and I sat down to talk about his new book, The Tower, A Chronicle of Climbing. No, no, wait a second. A Chronicle of Climbing and Controversy on Cerro Torre. A lot of alliteration in that title. So there's been a lot of new fans coming on board, been hearing from a lot of new people, binging through the back catalog. So I'm going to do everyone a favor. My little gift to you in the new year is shutting up. I talked too much in this one already, so let's just get to it. Distinguished author, Kelly Cordes. Say my margarita, put hair on your chest. Yes. T- take it from your bald head and put it on your chest. <laughs> Dude, I'm turning to you. I got a patch on my scalp where my hair's falling out, man. Really? Yeah, it's fucking weird. It's the stress. I, man, it's been so nice to not be writing anymore. I'm not writing again for the rest of my life, and it's been such a relief. After all the stress, I just sit and talk shit. And I took a job, dude. First full-time job, 46 years old. 
Well, really? Yep. We're doing what? I know, yeah. <laughs> I saw what, the what like, disappointment in your voice there. Uh, Einstein bagels? Or <laughs> yeah. what are we talking about? Well, I had that. <laughs> I might have told you I had that liquor store help wanted sticker po- uh, sign posted on my above my computer monitor. Oh. There's a good story about the stress of the book. And the one day, midday, I'm like, fuck this. And I walk the liquor stores right across the street from my uh-huh. house. There's this help wanted sign on the door. And I just fucking stand there for a while staring at it like, oh, man. And then I finally like came around. I'm like, no, nah, dude, no, nah, dude. You got to stay with this book thing. And I took a picture of it and printed it out and put it on my desk. Or, or it's still taped to my computer monitor. And the idea was that it would remind me. You know, to do a good job with this book or else I'm going to end up working in a fucking liquor store. But then as the stress built during the book, I started to just like long for the liquor store. I was like, I want out. I just want bail. This is too much work, too much research. The writing, the research was interesting, but the writing was just desperate. I mean, I, for me, writing was really hard. I don't know if it's the same for you, but I think for most people who care about their writing, it's not easy. All right. So we're in. So I'm sitting in a secret location in Boulder, Colorado, on the southern side of Boulder, Colorado, uh, with Kelly Cordes, has returned to the show after many people have bugged me about having you on the show Thanks, again. Um, it's been, I mean, you're on like episode nine or something was the last Yeah, it was an early one. Up. I can't remember. Oh, no, no, then you're on the live one at the... At, oh, um, right. Well, and we did the... Uh the one in your in the climb lab or your version of the climb lab, you know your your mobile studio, yeah. your RV. Well, that was earlier though. Oh, was it? That I was like remember. episode three. I'm getting old. That one when I met you at Hayden's place. Ah, that's right. Then you came back and we did it in the parking lot of before yeah. going into the Five Point, and then then you were on the live show. Uh, that's was it that no then it was the following year so i don't know what episode that is it's in the 20s but anyway welcome back to the thanks podcast, dude Kelly. we Thank are here you. on the occasion uh, we're, there we go we're podcast shaking hands we are here on the occasion of the release of your book which was um last month or in november yeah uh, about a month ago yeah, yeah it was about a month ago uh-huh a book about sarah torre called what it's the the tower mm-hmm. And then it has... Uh, yeah, the subtitle is A Chronicle of Climbing and Controversy on Territory. Okay. Which is cool because the Norma cast actually is cited in the bibliography, I noticed. Mm-hmm. I went and looked um, because I believe yep. when I was reading some of the quotes, Hayden's quotes, I think yep. some, a couple of them are from the show, mm. which is awesome. But it's a big part of the enormous cast because that you know that those were like episodes six and seven I those did were with, two with of the Hayden. best episodes ever man that, those were amazing episodes well in in I, I mean they turn out great but also because you know a it was hayden and b you know it was this the one of the few times like the enormous cast was timely like and what happened was and i don't know if i've ever really explained this on the show but you know hayden kennedy went and he and he ended up chopping uh the compressor route i don't want to review the whole thing a big yeah. part of your book, because um, this book covers that route as well as Maestri's original uh, yeah. claim to cl- have climbed it in 1959. Way back, yep. And when he that happened, you know, the the whole shitstorm came down on, on my little friend Hayden, <laughs> and uh, who I've known since eighth grade or whatever, <laughs> since he was in eighth grade. And, uh, you know, when he, he was in the middle of this shitstorm and, and, you know, some people calling him a hero and a lot of people call him an asshole and all that, and I... I talked to him and I said, hey, look, dude, this is what's going to happen. Like, I want you to come on the show and I want you to tell your side of it. And he was really nervous to do that. And 
with good reason because i mean like if you turned on the internet like if you just flicked the internet switch on it like (laughs) like a big pile of shit just like fell on your head you know but nevertheless i was like look if you come on and you talk about this and you give your reasoning and and people hear who you are where you guys were coming from how the history of it all kind of came together i mean people may not agree with you any more than they did before but at least they were going to have to take three hours and listen to you because right. it was a it was a two part three hour yeah. interview, and I think most of them, even if they disagree with you, they, mm-hmm. they'll lighten up on like you're right. just a cocky asshole. Yeah, it, it, it's so crazy. Anybody, I've, so many people that I've spoken with, and and certainly I agree with this. So so many people it would say things like completely uninformed. They're like, oh, it, those guys are so cocky or. It, they just did it to be famous. Right. And it's everybody who, who knows anything mm-hmm. says, well, those people don't know Hayden Candy. Right, right. They've obviously never met the guy. Well, and they did do it to be cocky in a way because it, oh, it was surely. a cocky maneuver. Totally, I mean, it, it, it man. It had to be someone like that. But I think there's an arrogance yeah. involved in Alpine mm-hmm. climbing in the first place, man. Who the right. fuck walks up to some 5,000-foot-tall thing with a 15-pound backpack mm-hmm. on and doesn't have a little bit of arrogance in them? Right. You know, I've yeah. got it. Everyone's got it. Yeah. You know, it's just, It depends on how it comes up. So, but the the moral of it was, is that in the end, you know, and Hayden's told me this, it helped. It like, yeah. it helped kind of like clear the air a little bit. Um, I got emails where people said that, that exact thing. Like, I, I disagree with him still, you mm-hmm. know, but at least, you know, I've heard his side right. and, it's, and it's sort of reasonable. And, and um, anyway, and it also kind of put the Enormacast on the map in a way because it was one thing that people really wanted to tune into and, and still do, actually. I still get emails about it, even it, though it's a couple years those old. Those were such good episodes, man. They really were. Uh, uh, your mm-hmm. listeners should go back and listen to them if they haven't, if they're interested in the topic. Well, and if you're interested in the topic, and what I guess I was going to get to is that, you know, we tried to put maestri and and what went on not just again on the the compressor route but also in his previous uh claim or attempt or alleged ascent into perspective and and a lot of people don't have that perspective of what the compressor route actually was and how Mm -hmm. it fit into this this raging controversy at the time because it wasn't simply that in the old days, they did things different. In the no, modern age, it's it, not at all. It, it didn't fit in even then. No. Nope. So this book, and you know, you built and you you talk about this even in the narrative, but also mm-hmm. if you look at the bibliography, it's clear you built on all these different things that had been right. done and said about right. it. But um, you know, it, it's it's the whole operation. Mm-hmm. You put it all into perspective, and I think anybody who who and everybody's calmed down to a certain not everybody, but. <laughs> Most people have calmed down about the chopping, but... This is not Vietnam, Walter. (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) If hearing me talk about it again is getting your hackles up, then (laughs) you have to read this book because this is another piece of the puzzle mm-hmm. and it, it was a it was a more complex puzzle than two cocky kids oh, yeah. wanting to destroy the past oh yeah and you really you know get into it and so let, let me uh, just have you tell me what Man. the book is about um the book is basically a sort of a weighted history of Saratoria. it's not a it's not a comprehensive history it's heavily weighted toward the effects of this guy, Cesare Maestri, and it dates back to the 50s and actually even before. And 
it, I've heard it said that history is a series of connected events, and that's certainly true on Saratore. And I think that on Saratore, that the connected events are just more bizarre than almost any mountain on earth. And so it makes for a fascinating story, and that's mm-hmm. kind of what drew me. And so I tried to weave together the narrative of that influence that began in the 50s and in a way even began before, I mean, it even began in post-war Italy in one way of thinking that's really not that much of a stretch and how that influence continued to this very day. And then so intertwined there is like, why do we even go to the mountains? What What is it that we value? What is it that we're looking for? And then also in the book, because I'm so used to writing about myself, <laughs> like any climber, I'm a narcissist. And so I, um, I you know, want to interweave my personal travels uh, while I was kind of investigating and researching the book. And, you know, seven different countries I interviewed people in. And, yeah, I mean, my selected bibliography is, I think, 256 entries. You know, a lot more shaped my thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the the thing that it hinges on, and you actually mm-hmm. just pronounce his name. What is it? Well, the correct pronunciation, as near as I can do, because I don't speak Italian, is Cesare. Cesare. Maestri. So, you know, he claimed to have climbed Saratore in 1959. Correct. Um, went up there with an Austrian named uh, Tony, Tony Egger. Okay. And basically, and another guy, uh, what's his first name? Cesarino Fava. Okay. Fava Egger Maestri. Right. But Fava was basically a ground man who helped climb in the beginning yeah. of the route. Yeah, yeah. Disappeared onto it for what, like six days or right. more or less? Well, their final push supposedly was, uh, yeah, one, two, yeah, about six days round trip. So, this is the, uh, <laughs> we can do allegedly, supposedly, right. this is sort yeah, of the yeah, reigning yeah. narrative. Totally. Comes down, Fava finds him on the glacier, whacked out, yep. lost his mind, and he basically. Three words Tony, Tony, Tony. Right. Right. <laughs> How's that for Italian drama? I don't want to. I don't want to laugh because I, the <laughs> last episode I put up, I put a, a track from Tony, Tony, Tony on oh, the, the '80s uh, no the vocal group. Yeah. Oh the, my god. Anyway, that's awesome. It's a weird coincidence. Wow. But nevertheless, so over the next few days or weeks or whatever, kind of had this amorphous story about how they had climbed Saratori essentially on the north side yep. after having started on on east, east side, mm-hmm. crossed over. The coal of conquests, yeah, and then took a um, left, and and Agar died on the ascent, on the de- descent, on the descent, supposedly, supposedly, right. was l- being lowered, and and uh, avalanche swept mm-hmm. him off the end right. of the rope, or being what lowered is the um, long time narrative, right? Once you dig a little deeper, it's not the same narrative that was the original story. Okay, so many contradictions. Pretty quickly, a lot of people started questioning the ascent and the veracity of what he told and the changing things. He returns in 1970 to do the compressor route, shows up with a 400-pound gas-powered compressor and, you know, more or less drills himself up up the wall over a protracted period, putting bolts in. Anywhere, I mean, I've seen 300, I've seen 400, 420, Somewhere in there. No one's actually counted, right. And, And just... 
jams the root straight up face. the face, supposedly to yeah. prove that he could climb Saratori. I will humiliate them, and they will be ashamed for having doubted me. Comes down to, uh, you know, everywhere it seems outside of Italy, people scratching their heads at the very least, if not out outright outraged mm-hmm. about the way he did the climb and also fails to prove anything because it was you know he went from 1959 <laughs> you know futuristic what, what, so far ahead of the time to this day <laughs> would still be oh, well it took 47 years and dozens of attempts by the best alpinists of each subsequent generation until someone finally climbed that same face. I mean, mm-hmm. that's how far it, it was a half a century ahead of its time. So essentially the book, again, is a history of territory, as you just said, heavily focused on these roots, the inconsistency. And in some ways, it comes down to this mystery. Did you pitch this? Was, did yeah. anyone approach you about doing the book? How did nope. it come to be? It was, it was my idea, me and, well, and Katie, my special lady friend. Mm-hmm. Um, she and I were She's in... She's not your special lady friend. <laughs> my special lady friend, man. Um, we, we were, I thought you were just trying to help her conceive. <laughs> yeah. Is that yoga? Right. Um, we were in Uray ice climbing, and um, it was right after Hayden and Jason chopped her out, and I'm kind of all engrossed in that whole thing. And, and you know, I, Katie's, like, listening to me blab about it, and I, you know... F- I, w- I was a senior editor for the American Alpine Journal. I worked there for 12 years, and so I'm, I was very familiar with the history of Saratoria and the influence of Maishi. And, the, you know, it's like, no, this actually isn't just 2012. This dates back to this, which is actually tied to this, and it's actually tied to this. And if you dig a little further, it's tied to this. And I think it was probably Katie's idea to say, like, hey, why don't you, why don't you pitch a book idea? Mm-hmm. And so... So, yeah, so I did. I pitched it to Patagonia, who I work for, mm-hmm. and they have a small publishing division. And uh, I, I didn't pitch it anywhere else. You right. know? I'm just, you know, because I'm, I'm, you know, just like some bumpkin climber up in Colorado. I mean, I'm not right. going to get the attention of, of anybody else. And uh, so, yeah, and they, they, they said, yeah. And well, so, I mean, they, obviously, it's in there their game. Go. Yep. All right, so that helped. Yep. But, you know, they, in the whole controversy, Patagonia mm-hmm. came out in, in heavy support yeah. of what those guys had done. Yep. You know, hearkening back to to Chenard, like his yeah. whole ethos when he was climbing, mm-hmm. this, this movement, you know, towards stoppers and away yeah, from... Yeah, clean climbing. Clean climbing, and, and, or towards clean climbing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so I... And I mean, they ran an ad, you know. Yeah, they did. So yeah. I think it, it, it probably... I mean, it's again, it all fit. sort of fitting together yeah, and coming fit. together. Now, so once you, <laughs> once you'd pitched the, the idea. <laughs> yeah, and then, and then I came to my senses and had to actually write the damn right. thing. Jesus. Yeah. yeah, it was terrible. <laughs> Dude, I'm never writing again. It was way too much fucking work. You're seeking these people. You, you were running yeah. up against walls here and there. I mean, oh, yeah. you, you never did yep. speak face-to-face because he, he hasn't given an interview about about 1959 since early 2006 right i got the original audio tra- and translated transcript of uh-huh. that interview but yeah he, he won't speak to anybody right about it he's bitter and angry so i'm trying to figure out cesare maestri through his friends and, mm-hmm. and through a letter that i wrote to him and he wrote me a letter back and then he like calls our, our friend's house to make sure I got the letter. Sure. You know, so he's saying, like, he doesn't care. All these people mean nothing to me. And 
you know, it's he's kind of a tragic figure in a way, you know. He's certainly a tragic figure. Absolutely. I mean, there's, it's not Absolutely. in a way. He's, yeah, not in a way. I mean, all Absolutely. the people that you talk to that yeah. knew him are, are, are you know, he, he seems to appear in print as this angry, you know, mm-hmm. get off my lawn guy. Right. <laughs> or in some of those appearances yeah. you talked about, like yeah. the bewildered mm-hmm. old man not knowing what I know, sort of man. like, yeah, you know. Little... So you mentioned in the start of this thing, talking mm-hmm. about going way back to sort of post-World War II yeah. and, and the roots of this. Which and, even goes before that to Mussolini and all that. I mean, there's a, there's a heavy historical influence in Italy as to how and why some people in Italy, at least in the Trentino region, because mm-hmm. Italy's quite unique in the way it's got these almost like city-states, but that there's a strong history going back to you know the, the first half of the century right um it, and uh it, it is indeed fairly difficult for us to understand and i had no idea going into it and i, I don't want to try to come off as though i'm a expert in european history or anything like that but the way italy got completely annihilated in the first half of the 20th century from Mussolini through going into World War II with Hitler and then switching the Allied side. And they got bombed into oblivion. They, Italy felt completely wiped out and the losses and the carnage there, it, it's kind of unfathomable to mm-hmm. us. And then they were looking for things to unify them, which is quite understandable when you really think about it. And in the early 50s, there was still this big era of these nationalistic expeditions to try to, like, plant the flag of their country on top of the highest peaks of the world. And in 1954, when a large Italian team made the first ascent of K2, it was such an event in Italy that 40,000 cheering countrymen and women were waiting at the port in Genoa for the Italian team when they came back, uh, the climbing team. 40,000 people. One author who I quoted in my book, an Italian author, said something to the effect of, I can't remember the quote off the top of my head, but it's basically, you know, this was the first time in this this century that Italy could wave the collective flag of Mm -hmm. victory over the ruins of defeat or something Mm -hmm. like that. It was such an enormous thing to Italians you know, so, so they're looking for heroes. But that, that, the, the tie to the K2 expedition, which, as I just mentioned, the unifying feeling in Italy. So there is an interesting tie in that Maestri, who is undoubtedly one of Italy's finest climbers, but he was left off of the 54 K2 expedition for reasons that aren't completely clear, but point to basically political infighting and he wasn't so much a team player mm-hmm. my she's the kind of person who we as flag waving americans we actually would love someone like this i mean he was a self-proclaimed anarchist did his own thing and those are probably the reasons why he, he almost always climbed solo when he led he said he always had to climb first on the rope he would follow nobody um he took machismo to a whole nother level. So when I made love to a woman, I did so in the press-up position to strengthen my arms. Yeah, yeah <laughs> like yeah. right. Well, on. you know the dude in uh, the dude in the Iger section, oh. who's who, who, <laughs> your movie, Frytag's banging his wife. 
<laughs> that guy is, is modeled on, on my street. No way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I did not know yeah, that. Yeah. I did not know that. Yeah, because um, he wow. mentioned something about that. Wow. And, uh, I yeah. no idea. Anyway. Well, and so Maestro's this character, right? And he gets left off of the, the 54 expedition, which was, I mean, the 54 expedition to K2, that's the, the highest thing that an Italian climber could have had at right. the time. And we know that the expedition was totally flawed, and they completely screwed over Benatti. All these things happened. But anyway, so Maestro was left off of it. In response, he went into his home... Uh, range the Brenta Dolomites and in one day free soloed up and down the story goes mm-hmm. a, a number of peaks equaling the exact same vertical height of base camp to summit on right, K2 right, right. <laughs> and um, so my shoe was pretty bitter about that he got left off that but then around that time there was a change happening in alpinism and, and it was shifting to what we now consider alpinism as opposed to the big siege style mentality of, you know, fixing ropes up, that conquest mentality of the highest peaks. So along that, the, the top-notch alpinists in Europe, you know, they, they were looking to do things alpine style, and on these really awesome technical peaks, Lionel Terre and Guido Magnon in 1952, these French climbers made the first ascent of Fitzroy. From the top of Fitzroy, they looked over at Cerro Torre and said it was the most beautiful mountain they had ever seen, and thought that it was probably impossible. Now, we climbers haven't changed that much. Someone says it's impossible. All of the top climbers are going to want to try and climb it. So for Maestri in the tight-knit Trentino region of northern Italy, which has always kind of been its own little separatist sort of thing, it's actually an aut- part of an autonomous region within Italy. So, you know, Maestri, like, you know, he's one of the top alpinists of the day. There's no greater thing you could do at the time than to climb Cerro Torre. So Maestri, as well as a team from the Lecco region, like Walter Benatti, Carlo Mori, these guys, they're all in competition for the first ascent of Cerro Torre. So Maestri, with a huge chip on his shoulder, feeling left out after K2, goes there, goes in 58 in competition with Benatti, returns in 59, has this story that they climbed it absolutely did not happen but he comes back with this story comes back to a huge parade suddenly he's a hero in Trentino he's like and you think about it it's like wait that's so weird why is that such a big deal remember post-war Italy they're looking for heroes the Trentino region this autonomous tight-knit region a little bit separatist style in northern Italy suddenly has this affiliation with someone who made what would still stand as the greatest ascent in history if mm-hmm. it ever happened. Mm-hmm. So suddenly it's not that hard. It's not that much of a stretch in a way when you put yourself in that mindset to think of, of how these people could still believe in it. It's hard to let go of your heroes, right? right. I mean, look, I talked in the book a little bit about you know the Lance Armstrong sure. thing, right? Uh, and I talked about how I grew yeah. up in State College, Pennsylvania, you know, home of Penn State football, and the, the, the horrendous things that happened there. And still, people in State College refuse to believe the, these horrific things that happened. And they're, like, trying to defend it. Mm-hmm. It's fucking crazy. Yeah. Humans, that's the whole thing, man. Like, when it comes to human behavior, evidence is no match for belief. Yeah. It goes I thought, because you mentioned the Lance Armstrong thing in the book, mm-hmm. and it's a really excellent analogy because, yeah. you know, once everybody was suddenly like, oh, yeah, he was, he was doping, 
you know, there was just multiple people that were like, yeah, I printed this article 10 years ago mm -hmm. that talked about this. And these and the French had been right. talking about it in printing articles and evidence and for years and right. years and years. You but know? over in the but, U.S., we're all just like, no, he's never tested right, positive. Right. Nothing else matters. Right. He's our hero. You know, Lance, Lance, Lance. Yeah. Right? And I, I think it was I think the, the sea change happened so quickly. Mm -hmm. You know, because it really did sort of the, the scale tipped so far that everybody was like, oh, yeah, I guess. Yeah, yeah I guess I did know that, right. you know. Yeah. Yeah. So and then he finally admitted it, which right. we don't have in this case. But, right. But uh, so let's talk about a little bit about um, the 59 expedition. Uh -huh. You know, those guys came down. They said it happened. Yeah. There was, you know, some grumbling or, or, or wait, what happened now? And, yeah. And, and, and these Just because it was so far out there. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was a little mm -hmm. bit like saying you flew to the moon before mm -hmm. a spaceship was in band, right? right? So at first the the doubts were kind of theoretical. Like mm -hmm. it, it was just, it's just too hard, right. you know? But, you know, it was so far away back then. Right. That's the crazy thing, man. You can never predict the future. And that's one of the many traps you set for yourself when you tell a lie right. you have you have no idea of how you're going to be revealed in the mm -hmm. future mm -hmm. at and the time it, it, i mean it's so far you know patagonia was a legitimate expedition then the town of el chalten didn't even wasn't even established until 1985 right i mean they had no way of no i mean can you imagine like them real thinking that a hundred people in a season would stand atop territory. That happened right. in the 2012-13 season. Right. There's no way they could possibly comprehend. So it's easy to imagine that, you know, maybe they come up with this story. You know, maybe it was to kind of honor their dead friend, maybe, with the, um, with the brilliant side benefit of being a part of the greatest ascent in history. Mm -hmm. And nobody's ever going to know. Right. So let's talk about debunking that, yes. that ascent. Um, one of the big moments, again, you have 10, 15, whatever years where everybody's just like, wow, it sounds like that couldn't have happened, but we don't, yeah. as far as we know, it did. Giving the benefit right, of the doubt. Right. As climbers, we all want to believe in sure. the impossible, right? You want, yeah. you want to believe in your fellow climber. Right. And, you know, so people can rise beyond. And, yeah. And, and one of his explanations you know, was that in that those conditions, the, the, the face was covered in ice and, and Tony Egger was like the world's greatest ice climber at the time. But nevertheless, I mean, it still <laughs> it was, was like it was actually a bad way to come up with a story, as I talk about in the equipment chapter. Mm -hmm. And part of the problem with not being able to see the future, is you have no idea when you're making up a story about climbing something that would be grade six ice. Right. You have no idea that the tools that you have at the time it's impossible to climb that. The modern ice axe was still a decade away from being being sure. invented. I mean, it was truly impossible mm -hmm. for anybody. Give so, Will Gad that equipment right now, he wouldn't get off the ground. Sure. All, yeah. all respect to Will is a badass. Right. I mean, I kind of was explaining yeah. to somebody, like, when race cars only went 90 miles an hour, it's mm -hmm. like claiming that you went 150. Ah, yes, you know, yes, it's like, yes. It's just, it's... And with ice it's not climbing... not like you put the right mixture of gas or you were just <laughs> right. a better driver, you know? It's like, such a good analogy. And that's the thing with ice climbing. I mean, that's why it almost would have been a better uh, story to go the complete opposite direction mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. say that a freak storm came and melted out all of, like, the 
the mushrooms up top and everything. Because with rock climbing, I mean, certainly, of course, sticky rubber cams, all those things make a difference. But you're still basically using your fingers and mm-hmm, toes. Mm-hmm. I mean, they climb in uh, over in Germany, like around 1910, they climbed like 510. Right. I mean, it's pretty amazing. Ice climbing is so dependent on the equipment. I mean, whereas with rock climbing, you know, fingers and toes, yeah, maybe someone's a total freak. Mm-hmm. Maybe they were able to climb 512 and 19 whatever or something. Ice climbing, if you don't have the right tools, you can't even get off the ground. Right. I mean, literally. Like, right. like literally. Like, like go, go with a pair of bedroom slippers up to, like, a water ice two climb. Yeah. The easiest climb when in a pair of bedroom slippers. And tell me how far you get. Uh, you know, you, you won't be able to leave the ground. Uh, so the first, like, real concrete evidence occurs mm-hmm. when those guys try to climb Sarah's uh, uh, Tori, Tori Egger. Danini and yeah. those guys. Yeah. Yep. Danini, so, Bragg, and Wilson. Yeah, yep. tell me about that. Because yeah. I remember this was something that did come up quite a long time mm-hmm. ago and was, like, yeah. a little blip on the, yeah. the wait-a-minute yep. radar. Yep. And I'm sure some people were really eager to talk to those guys as soon as they came mm-hmm. down about what they found. So, so yeah. Well, what happened was, so, the first people to ever actually repeat the train that Maestri claims they climbed, that was uh, Jim Danini, John Bragg, and Jay Wilson. And so, they're uh, making the first ascent of Tori Egger. And to understand a little bit how this relates, it, remember that on this aspect, Tori Egger and Sarah Torre share this high call that Maestri had named the Kola Conquest. And basically, if you're looking at it from the east, you go up to the Kola Conquest, you take a left if you're climbing Saratoria, mm-hmm. you take a right if you're climbing mm-hmm. Torriegger. And so they were the first to repeat the terrain up to the Kola Conquest. And they went there believing Maestri. Mm-hmm. They, they, they completely believed the story. And um, the, the first, like, 1,000 feet, about 300 meters to this triangular snowfield, real prominent landmark, they're seeing artifacts everywhere. It, Danini told me it was like a walk through history and he's just blown away because he's like a student of history and he had right. read all these stories. You know, they're seeing these old fixed ropes, old fixed pitons, everything. And then above there, nothing, absolutely nothing. They're seeing stuff, I don't know, a hundred artifacts or so in the first thousand feet. And then they don't see like anything. Like pitons, yeah, wood, because they use exactly. the wood, the wood Old wedges. wooden wedges, yeah. some wood, some metal, fixed ropes, all kinds of stuff. Mm-hmm. And then absolutely nothing, which is a little weird, right? Yeah. But but they're trying to think, you know, hey, let's give the guy the benefit of the doubt. Maybe, you know, we climb this corner to the right. Maybe they climb this one to the left, even mm-hmm. though why would they do that? This is obviously the path of least resistance. Well, mm-hmm. I, anyway, maybe they just got their game on real good and right. started firing up things. But then the thing that really was pretty damning was the terrain. Mm-hmm. So from below, it looked a certain way. Mm-hmm. And that's the way Maestri described it, is the way it looked from below. Now, as, But he described it as if he'd climbed it. Right, right, right. So, you know, he's looking at it from below. Yeah, he's describing it as if he climbed it, mm-hmm. and his description matches the way it appears if you're standing at the base of the route looking up. Mm-hmm. Now, anybody who's done any climbing on a big, complicated face knows that it's the way it actually climbs is not always the way it looks, right? right? So that big head wall, in fact, this is a, a true example, that this one spot where from below there's this fierce-looking head wall, mm-hmm. and Denise thinking, man, that thing's going to be the crux. How in the hell? Well, those guys did it in 59, and we have all this Yosemite experience. I guess we'll, we'll be able to figure it out. 
you get up to the base of that head wall and there's a hidden passage mm-hmm. that, that, that juts around to the right and it's like fourth class. Mm-hmm. You know, my, my shoes descriptions never mention any of the way it actually climbed right. to the core conquest. He, he gave meticulous descriptions in that initial thousand feet where that were very difficult for them, right. where there's all kinds of artifacts. And then above, his descriptions got a little more vague and were only as it appears from below, but it climbed completely differently. Right. As Danini said, he's like, we, we weren't even to the Kola Conquest, and we knew that Maestri hadn't climbed it, that it was a complete lie. He, you know, when we're climbing on mountains, we're usually, it's interesting, we're looking at the most appealing feature we're looking to climb, mm-hmm. but once we get on there and we're looking for that feature, we're not playing a limit. It's not like we're going to the spot for a bouldering session. Right. You're looking for the easiest way within that particular feature and most certainly climbers of 1959 were doing so they weren't right. playing a limited up on you know the quote-unquote impossible yeah, we could go we could go up this fourth class but no let's try to do let's this try the well. 512 way yeah right maestri claimed that that above there was actually the easy part of the yeah climb, the rest of the climb right which is just absurd i mean he just says that you know it was coated in this like fragile coat of ice and uh, and Egger just danced up it. He said it was like one of the easiest climbs of his life. And for the first time in his career, he says that he basically relinquished, you know, almost all of the leading to Tony Egger. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's a I guess gentlemanly way of putting it when your when your partner died. But it, it simply didn't happen. Right. I mean, it. And that was the thing. It, that's one thing that a lot of um, people trying to defend Maestri had, had hung their hat on. It, is that well, if this mythical sheet of ice on the north face, which is the sunny side mm-hmm. in South America, uh, if this myth- mythical sheet of ice actually formed, maybe they could have climbed it. You know, A lot of people have said that over the years. And so no one's ever seen that sheet of ice form again. It gets covered in this plastery rhyme that's totally worthless. But the weird thing is, and a lot of times... There are these things that people just overlook, that get overlooked throughout the course of history. And one of them that I had never seen written about anywhere else, but that I have a whole chapter on it in my book. Once I started digging, it is this notion that we talked about earlier, which is like, wait a second. If it was a sheet of ice, it's so steep that it would be like grade five and grade six ice. Mm -hmm. And in 1959, they weren't climbing grade five and grade six ice. And not because they weren't good climbers. They were incredibly bold and talented climbers with very good technique. But the modern ice axe wasn't invented until late 60s, circa 1970. Mm-hmm. And so it's, historians have called it that the ice axe revolution, that the standards of ice climbing just rose exponentially around the mm-hmm. time of the modern ice axe. Routes that used to take weeks of sieging, people are repeating in a day, right. two days, things like that. There's probably nothing in the course of climbing equipment that had such a monumental shift. Probably not even the friend had such a, you know, camming devices probably didn't have such a monumental shift in standards. Mm-hmm. Be- because this actually allowed you to climb vertical ice with two ice axes with this curved pick. And this curved pick was key. It kept your ice axe from popping out. Up until then, they climbed ice with this, like, this old school, like, Alpenstock. You know, the 80-centimeter mm-hmm. wooden mm-hmm. axe 
with a straight pig that came out perpendicular, usually didn't have teeth, sometimes had tiny little teeth. It's like a, a freaking sewing awl, right, you know? Right. And they were chopping handholds. They would balance and chop handholds, move up in perfect balance. Incredible skill required to do that. Mm-hmm. But the high end of the thing, I went back and researched like Gaston Rebuffat's books. He had one, conveniently enough, published in 1959, another one in 1970. Um, about the, the modern techniques of, of uh, snow and ice climbing in severe steepness grades, like top end of the scale. It was mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. extreme difficulties, like 50 to 60 degrees. Right. It, it, um, the, the, the modern ice axe changed ice climbing, and that didn't happen for another decade after Maestri's claim of he and Tony Egger racing up this sheet of ice on the North Face of Territory. Sure. So it truly was impossible. So as climbers, we like to think anything is possible. But theoretically, iced over north face of Cerro Torre in 1959 mm-hmm. was impossible. Not just for Cesare Maestri and Tony Egger. It was impossible for anybody. Right. Nobody in the world in 1959 with the equipment they had could climb it. So let's talk a little bit more about then physical evidence. So those guys, I mean, they didn't go any higher on the wall. Right. We're talking Donini and his crew because they turned right. And they turned right. And went up. <laughs> Tori Egger, right? Yep. Named, named for yeah, Tori Egger. Yeah, classy move. They right. left a carabiner that they had found with Egger's remains. Mm-hmm. They left it on the summit. Okay. Yep. So Donini's ascent was sort of the first physical evidence yes. that comes back, right? Yes. And, I mean, what year was that? That Can was you pull it off the top of your head? Six, I believe. Yeah, so this is after compressor and everything. So this mm-hmm. thing has sat there for 20 or 15, 16 years without anybody going right. over there to look at the 1959 ascent. Mm-hmm. Those guys, as you said, were even while climbing it, were okay, this wasn't climbed. Yeah. Had made up their minds. And they went into it believing right. Maestri. That's an important note. They, it's not like they had it out for the guy mm-hmm. or something. So. Finally, that face in that vicinity of the upper part of the route was right. climbed when? 2005. 2005. November 2005. Rolo Garibaldi, who we all know is the man. That would be the ultimate fucking coup for your show, dude, if you could ever get Rolo on. That guy is like, it's like the I'm, not, I'm doing the I'm not worthy Wayne's World thing. Yeah, Rolo's the man. You, so. You're as good an in as I got. Well, well, actually, I, no, I have a better oh, in with oh, Rolo. Good. good. So. <laughs> okay, good. No, actually, but, I, I, Rolo knows who I am. Yeah, yeah, yeah a, we'll get, you know, I, I, I'll try to apply subtle pressure in yeah. my little way. Not that, not that anyone can pressure Rolo. He's the man. I mean, he's so highly regarded he's, for his knowledge and for his climbing and the and way he does looks. things. He's, he's a good-looking guy, man. Yep. Yeah, no doubt. The, um, and uh, <laughs> so, yeah, so it was Rolo, Rolo uh-huh. Garibaldi. Alessandro Beltrami, who I interviewed in Italy, mm-hmm. and Ermano Salvatera, who okay. I also, I stayed at Ermano's house, went climbing with him, hung out with him. Ermano is kind of known as Mr. Italian, Serratore. Right? Also, yeah, yeah, Italian yeah. also. Ermano, fascinating dude, man. I mean, he's, without question, Serratore's greatest climber of all time. He grew up about 10 miles down valley from Maestri. In a sense, has basically lived in Maestri's shadow. Mm-hmm. Grew up believing Maestri, defending Maestri. Wanted nothing more than to believe the Maestri story. Right. He started to look at the evidence and knew it was kind of specious. And But he had said, before he went to Cerro Torre with Rolo and Ale in 2005, he had said, if I can find only one piton right. of theirs high on the face... 
I will fling it in the world's face and most of all my own. He wanted nothing more than to believe. Well, and, and in various, uh, and these things changed over time, the, the descriptions that, uh, that Maestri made of the route, but right. in, in most of his accounts, he talked about having placed bolts Mm-hmm. And uh, so there, there's, you know, should have been evidence that wouldn't just fall and out. And you got to get down, right? Right. Yeah. Where's the wrap anchors? Well, yeah. they could just, yeah, V-thread, right? Yeah, yeah. They, I don't think the Abolikov or V-thread have been okay. invented yet, but they could wrap they off bollards, right? So, like right. any anything conceivable, people are defend. You know, sure, sure. people who so, want to believe are. He says things. there's yeah. some bolts here and there. Right, right. Those guys are headed up there. Mm-hmm. Salvatore's like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, if I yep. find just, yeah. you know, a. a a crampon scratch. <laughs> right, 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 yeah, yeah. yeah. And Hermano, I mean, God, I, one of, you know what, man, one of, one of the regrets I have in writing this book is that I did not give enough credit to the stories, the, the stories of some of the people who went to Saratore quietly as badasses, did their shit, and then left mm-hmm. without creating mm-hmm. a mess. Right. Silvo Caro, Slovenia. I spent sure. time at his house in Slovenia. My God, I mean, what a badass. God, one night, brief interlude, dude, we're at his place in Osp. It was like an old castle, basically, mm-hmm. from forever ago. It's right by the sport climbing in, in Osp. Have you been on it? No, Osp? but I dude, just love it because all these, all these there, like, rad climbers it's live so, in castles. It's so good. <laughs> <laughs> well, Silvo, yeah, the... Um, so I'm going sport climbing with Silvo Caro in Osp, Slovenia. Phenomenal sport climbing right there. He's got this old, like, castle that, I mean, not really a castle. It's not like Reinhold Messner, you know. And, like, Silvo's like a working class dude, humble, low-key, and the hardest motherfucker. He, he and Hermano mm-hmm. are probably the hardest people I've ever met. Sure. And so cool. And uh, one night over, after the first night I was there, after sport climbing with Silvo for the day, we're drinking wine. And he starts telling me what it was like in the 80s and 90s when Slovenian alpinism was was the world standard. Right. They, 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 they did things that still to this day haven't been equaled. But most of his friends are dead. You know, yeah. they all died in the mountains. And Silva starts talking to me, and I'm just like, hushed silence. Like, you could hear a fucking pin drop, man. Like... He's got this thousand-yard stare, and he's like looking into his wine glass. He's telling me what it's like on like Bagarathi three when, you know, they're walking up to the face. There's craters in the snow from rockfall, and they're just like they're just going for it. And I mean, just that it, it, man, it, it felt like sitting there listening to like Moses tell you what it was like with the tablets mm-hmm. or something, mm-hmm. you know. So anyway, well, I didn't get online and like defend. Hayden mm-hmm. or those guys or the act or whatever they right. did. But what I try privately when I would explain it to people that weren't super clear on it, uh-huh. like, is that is that Maestri was not cut from that mold. Right. And yep. we have a yep. tendency to think that because that's our, our American climbing mm-hmm. heroes are cut right. from that mold. We want right. them to be humble. <clears throat> we want them right. to be relatively quiet. You know, we want them brash. to be... He was a showman. You know, yeah. And... And, and plus, the history of, of mountaineering is is those people are the people we revere. Right. He wasn't that person. And, right. and, and nothing like 
point like points it out more than than Bonatti, who mm. was that guy. Yeah. And those guys yep. were contemporaries. Absolutely. And and Bonatti literally backed off of Saratori yeah. to to yeah. to get out of competition yep. with this guy. Yep. You exactly. Know? Bonatti basically bowed out. He wasn't in. T- you know. He. I mean, know, he certainly was a. You know, oh, climbed for I'm God and sure country and all that sort of thing. But that. yeah. But he. You know, fits the mold of this of this man right. of the mountains, this guy who just <laughs> wants to climb. Yeah. In in an era when you know, yeah. I think probably the brash person was revered in mm. a way that we wonder, don't anymore. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, so. yeah. I wonder. You know, it's it's interesting because as as much as I've talked about how these people in Italy defend my stream, I mean, not also to be fair, you know, the the first doubts about 59 came from Carlo Mori. Who was with Benatti in '58? Right. Trying so, so there were definitely Maestri isn't beloved in all of Italy, but in the sure. Trentino, because he, sure. he's a contra, he's a polarizing dude. You know, he's like a love it or hate it sort of person. Sure, but in the Trentino region, he's a bit of a hero. And, and that, I guess, to get I took us off on a tangent, but just down the down valley from is where Ermano lives, right? Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, Ermano wanted nothing more than to uh, basically vindicate. Maestri, I think it must have been complicated for mm-hmm. Romano, you know? Yeah, I think he knew that Maestri didn't do it, but he was going there. He was hoping to sure. vindicate basically his, his hero in the Trentino region. But Romano is such a stand-up guy that he, when he came back, if you ever want someone to lie for you, don't ask Romano. Right, right. Don't ask Rolo. You right. know, those are not the sorts of people who sure. are going to come back and, like, lie for you. And Romano came back and said, you know, I found nothing. That mm-hmm. I found no trace of Maestri. The train does not match his description. We didn't even find his rappel anchors. You know, I mean, it just... And Rolo had always been outspoken about it since mm-hmm. his meticulously researched article, A Mountain Unveiled, that ran in the American Alpine Journal. And they came back and, and told the truth about what they found mm-hmm. and what they didn't find. Maestri hires a lawyer and threatens to sue them for defamation. I mean... It's really bizarre when Maestri still got all this support. And even in, in 2009 at the Trento Film Festival, that they're honoring Maestri for the 50th anniversary of the first ascent of right, Sarah right. It's bizarre, man. It's so weird. Human belief. Like, I don't know what other people think the book is about. It's probably about a bunch of different things depending on how you look at it, how you interpret it. To me, the book is kind of about belief. And it, it manifests itself in different ways. That We talked earlier about, I was saying how like we're all kind of arrogant mm-hmm. alpinists to, to walk up to something and think you can do it. you got to have some belief in that regard mm-hmm. too, man. Yeah, motherfucker, you better believe if you're going to go up on Cerro Torre mm-hmm. wearing a 10-pound backpack or whatever like, like Colin and I did on our climb. I can't, I look back at that, I'm like, man, wait. What the hell? Good thing we didn't get caught by a storm. Right. You know, it's like, yeah, I mean, that's a self-belief. And then there's a thread of belief in your heroes. And we're all an influence of our culture mm-hmm. here in America, capital M. We all want to believe we're, set, we're so independent. That's kind of bullshit. You know, right. we're, all, we're all influenced by our culture. There's always that saying of like, don't get too close to your heroes yeah. because you may not absolutely you know, like what you find, and, yep. it, and it extends to artists and pop culture. Absolutely, naming names. There's climbers out there yeah. who fit in history in a certain way, yep. and then you meet them, and you're just like, wow, this isn't that uh, great. And I kind of wish I, I liked it better in my yeah. head the way the way I had built them sure. up to be. Yes. So these guys go up there; they don't find any any 
thing anywhere, mm-hmm. and they were generally in the same vicinity yep. and, and looking. Yeah. Like, and not, oh, yeah. Oh, know, yeah. Knowing. They're looking. Yeah. You know, and it, it, it occurred to me while you were saying that, because I want to ask you, like, mm-hmm. why this matters. Yeah, yeah. And, and you, uh, I'm sure you've, you didn't embark on this thing for no particular reason so you hopefully well, dude i don't got that much going on in my life right. man you know hopefully there is some reason beyond i don't know the huge paycheck right <laughs> yeah anyway I'm still drinking like moderate level tequila nice yeah. oh, that's 100 percent agave you gotta draw the line somewhere yeah. dude good yeah. yeah so you know but that that's the weird thing is i just realized like the kind of poison that it laid right yes that First of all, if he didn't climb it, right. then, you know, all these these guys that were, were, you know, maybe over the next 10 years honing their craft to, to mm-hmm. have been able to climb the first ascent. Like, yeah. but, you know, so, so it, it, it took away that dream for a generation, right? Right. right. Or even long, I mean, even yeah. now, like. Well, and, it's and, had an ongoing influence. Yeah. And then, you know, and then the fact that, you know, this 1970, this compressor route, like creates even at the time all this mm-hmm. ill will right you know and 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 by by all accounts from reading everything he said he meant to do that oh like yeah that was a, oh, yeah. a, a an yeah. act and that that's kind of like again back during the the chopping mm-hmm. controversy what i try to explain to people like he was not just this no. happy-go-lucky hippie dude thinking that went, this is the way we do climbing he no, went no, there no. to fuck with everybody oh yeah and, oh, yeah. and said it out loud like yeah. he wasn't and like, i mean that's kind yeah. of part of why i i kind of almost right. think like well when when colin and i after we did our route and we were wrapping down the mm-hmm. compressor mm-hmm. i mean you know, we had been going for a couple of days straight, and so I'm exhausted and rubbed raw. I had this weird, almost like sense of admiration in a weird way for my street when I'm going down the compressor out, because mm-hmm. I'm just like, you know, it was one thing to have read about it and another to actually see it. Sure. And I was like, I had this almost weird admiration for him in a way for his like crazy determination, his like maniacal obsession. Right. Yeah, there, there are other people who have been obsessed and done horrible things. But, like, to be clear, I mean, he, he's not like Hitler or something. Right. I mean, not, he, didn't, you know, he didn't commit crimes against humanity when he sure. bolted this thing, right? But, you know, and I don't agree with it at all, and I was fully in support of Hayden and Jason's actions. Um, but it's pretty wild. Like, my street, it's easy to see how people can say they love him and hate him. And for me, mm-hmm. I, I kind of have both of those, Sure, you know? He, what an interesting guy. But then you, it, it continues because here's yes. this guy who's who's half worshiping him and half, right. and then he has to go up there. And you can only imagine that for the second half of that climb, right. this is in his head, this is yeah. in his brain for all those guys. Like, you know, and there's yep. Rolo like already made up his mind. Yeah. And and there's uh, what's his first Hermano. name? Hermano. Hermano, mm-hmm. like hoping to yep. hopes to find this and. I mean, at, I don't know what Ale Alessandro yeah. worked. I don't know if he still works there, but he's he's a certified mountain guide mm-hmm. in the same guide's office where Maestri was still like guiding like sure. celebrity treks. Right. So you know? then I see. I think like, well, what kind of you know little bit of conflict yeah. did it create between Rolo and him? Who knows? Because right. here's Rolo who who had long since made oh, up his yeah. mind, declared it. Well, Rolo's hard with the evidence, man. You know, I mean, Rolo and, bases and, uh, so decisions it's like just, on evidence. just the poison of the whole situation that it left There's behind. so much human conflict and right. drama. And then one of the interesting things 
is that so I was talking with this Argentine climber and writer the other day who helped me out with some ideas and gave me a photo of El Chalten in 1959. It's in the book in color. It's like there's one house mm-hmm. in El Chalten. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, uh, yeah, this guy's Sebastian. And uh, we were talking, and Sebastian had a, a great perspective. I mean, it's one I had thought of, but he put it really perfectly. I wish I had notes with me because I was writing as he was talking. Um, but, like, how it's so fascinating that Maestri and Fava went to the mountains probably for a lot of the same reasons that we all go for, for mm-hmm. freedom. And then you tell this lie, and you become a prisoner of this lie for the rest of your fucking life, man. Right. And, and, and in part, with Maestri, because it was such a great lie, such a huge lie, great in grandeur and scale is what I mean. And then it's such a big lie that every 10 years in, in your province, they hold a celebration for you. Right. Even if... I don't know if the man has the humility and the honesty to ever want to come clean, mm-hmm. but even if he did, could he? I mean, and all these people, when I'm in the Trentino region talking to people and I'm talking to his defenders and, they're t- and I'm reading comments about him and there's all these things about the humanity of my and he's this man, he's a, you know, it's a little weird because the guy was basically a complete asshole for like 50 years or whatever to anybody who was doubting him. And then at a certain point, he becomes an old man, and you right. have to have sympathy for the old man. It's like, wait, this, this doesn't make sense. You get to right. be an asshole for all these years right. to anybody who's calling for the truth, and then you should get a pass because now you're old. You know, um, But then, even if he wanted to come clean, I don't know if he could. And all these people who are saying that they're defending Maestri, I think they're actually defending something within themselves, mm-hmm. an idea that they have, a part of their identity that it touches. They're not defending Maestri. No, no more than the people who were defending Lance Armstrong were defending Lance. They were defending this idea, this ideal that they had about their heroes. Right. And in a, in a way, Maestri becomes a victim, but a victim of his own doing, right? Sure. He, I mean, he, he is entrapped by his own lie. Uh-huh. Well, now, you, you have a couple chapters. Essentially, the, the story of a rescue that had been told for 40 years or however long right. it had been told. There's a lot of evidence that it went exactly opposite. <laughs> right. And the rescuers, right. the, those who claimed to have tried to rescue this guy who died, yep. were in fact being rescued yep. at the time that it yep. happened. And you use it to illustrate, like, well, liars are liars. And here are these people who... Who who maybe have this history and and it's not yeah, it's not like they had this one lapse. You know that chapter made me think uh-huh. of Maestri yeah. and these all these amazing claims of these solo climbs, always solo climbs. Right. That was his. He was super famous for right. the solos that he had made. And some of them were witnessed for sure. Sure. Absolutely. Right. Some of them are witnessed for sure. But in an era like, I mean, you know, it's like poor Alex Honnold, you know, he can't like roll out of his bed, (laughs) out of his van with his hair messed up without someone taking his goddamn photo and videoing him. It's interesting. But this is an era where you could disappear into the Dolomites and come back and be like. You tell a story, oh, hey, what were you doing the last few days? Oh, I was climbing the Enormo Dome. Yeah, you know, the, the, you a know, solo to that. Yeah, solo to that. Totally, yeah. <laughs> exactly. It's so interesting. And, and, you know, Maestri's sole defense, if you would even call it that, his only address of the, you know, the, the people who are 
you know, saying, hey, how do you account for this with 1959? You have to take my word for it. Yeah, you have to take my word for it. He repeats over and over, if you doubt me, you doubt the history of mountaineering. Which is a little bit ridiculous because I I think literally and um, conceptually, literally, climbing has plenty of lies in its history. Sure. You know, you look at, you know, the the Mount McKinley, Denali thing. I mean, there's a lot of them, right? Exploration. David Roberts wrote a book, and I quoted from it, called Great Exploration Hoaxes. Sure, I yeah, mean, I read it. Yeah. So, um, but then also, conceptually, what is up with this ridiculous notion that climbers are above the rest of humanity? Mm-hmm. Meaning, the rest of humanity, we know that people lie. We All know that humans time. lie. It's, yeah. Exactly. And in fact, if you want to take it, you know, I think most things in, in life happen in degrees, but... You know, I mean, we all lie. I mean, we lied to our kids. It, it was just Christmas the other day, right? Hey, yeah, Santa Claus came down the chimney, Johnny. You know, come on, little Johnny. You know, I mean, we, we lie all the time. You're late for work, you know. You're, but, but, you know, the real reason is you overslept. You say, oh, yeah. well, you know, I, I got stuck in traffic. Yeah. I don't look at porn, yeah. baby. I never <laughs> Yeah, exactly. No, no. Exactly. <laughs> Not, me. Not me. No, those other guys, they're pigs. Yep, pigs. Yeah, exactly. So this, very, this notion that Climbers are somehow above the rest of humanity. Sure. It, it, it's purely pretentious mm-hmm. bullshit. The payoff is a big part of it, too, mm-hmm. because, you know, there's, there is the pathological liar who, yeah. who, who just lies to lie right. or, or can't help uh-huh. it. But the payoff to his lie to yeah. this, this, it was Quite enormous. I mean, greatest scent in history. I mean, yeah. he, he, you know, everyone I talked to in Italy is sure to, like, then go on, or at mm-hmm. least if they're a friend of my she's, to then go on and say, well, it wasn't only Sartori, he did all these other great things. He was undoubtedly a great climber. There's no question right. about that. That's verified. But the greatest, the crowning achievement of his career never happened. Right. Not even close to happen. Not even 25%. The, the thing about the, the lies, though, mm-hmm. and, the, and I think one of the reasons I think this is important, at least within climbing, is because I think it's pretty interesting that such a foundational climb yes. within within climbing, within yeah. within yeah. alpinism within or rock alpinism. climbing or any sure. of these things, turns out to be a lie. Yeah. It, it, it's it's pretty insane actually because then it starts Indeed. to be then it, it turns that on its head because he, you know in one way he is right like. And, and you talk about this, and, uh-huh. and the literature of the time talked about it. Like, mm-hmm. in the end, we, we have to take this person. Right. And, we, and that is what we generally have yeah, done. Yeah, unless compelling evidence suggests right. otherwise. And, right. and, and most of us feel yeah. pretty good about that. Yeah, yeah. And we all can, oh, yeah, but there was yeah. that one guy yeah, that did. Yeah, we get duped every now and then. Probably Clue more than said we he think. climbed free rider, but we know he, he stepped <laughs> exactly. on that piton and, like, whatever. He was at McDonald's. Yeah. <laughs> I know. I do. I did see him at Deegan's during that time. Exactly. But, but here is this thing that that I mean, this is in a lot of ways. Again, if 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 fifty nine had happened, yeah. like you said, oh. it was like going to the moon. Greatest so climb in history. In a lot of ways, it yeah. just calls to question the whole operation. Oh. <laughs> Dude, totally. You know I mean? I've wondered so much, man. It's like, like, okay, well, who else oh my is God. bullshit? Well, you know, you it's know? kind of funny, but, like, for a long time, I mean, long before even thinking of this idea of the mm-hmm. book or even mm-hmm. knowing anything about my tree, I had always said that, you know, like, with some of the climbs, some of the experiences that I've had, it's like, I'm glad I have, I have photos because, like, otherwise... 
I just wouldn't even believe it myself right. sometimes. You know, it's like, and, I and wonder how much, I bet we, I suspect we've been duped a lot more than we think. Bingo. That's what yep. I'm getting at. Yep. Like, like, right. Yeah. You know, or like. People lie. Well, you even had you know? the incident, you know, you talk about uh-huh. in the book with, uh, what was the name of that mountain you and Josh did? In the, oh, the, yeah. The Shingu Charpa. My, yeah. my own, my own firsthand experience right. so of the, climbing liars. Some yeah. guys that Ukrainian are Ukrainians team. that claimed to have climbed it. Yeah. And, and, and they up, didn't. They, they, didn't. They, they were lying. You know, yeah. Well, the, it, it made me realize that there's this hubris involved in it yes. that's that's so insane and like yeah. you said the that maestri just oh well no one will ever be back here how is anyone ever going to verify <laughs> right. this right yeah for sure in in the in even in a modern age like you, everybody has this tendency to think that that you know we're at the apex right and this right. is the raddest it's ever going to get nah, and yeah it's ridiculous. you know and so you had this team of ukrainians yep. thinking that well these guys you know right these two Bumbly dudes, too bumbly from American dudes, like, right? Exactly. Gonna, you know, they're not going to. So. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, they, yeah, it's kind of. And they crazy. claim to have they, climbed it before you. Yeah, so we right. arrived in base camp in the yeah. Nagma Valley in Pakistan. Josh and I, North Ridge of Shingu Charpa, striking line, terrible climbing, chops yeah, yeah, fest. Right. Uh, on the last show. And they, I think. And they, yeah, they uh, they claimed to have climbed it. We got there. They had already been in base camp for a little while. They had already attempted it once, and then they they went up and said they went to the top. And you know, they, at the top, it turns a corner, and you can't see it from base camp, but you can see it from the village down valley. Right. And the villagers which is where, knew. Yeah, the villagers knew, but because they've been watching with binoculars, they're fascinated by like, mm-hmm. whoa, you guys, you know, what, what the hell are you right. doing? You know, they're just trying to make survive in sure. these villages. Um, and uh, yeah, they came down, told us they had climbed it. A, little, a couple things seemed really suspicious at first, mm-hmm. seemed really weird. And uh, but you know, Josh and I, you know, no one wants to be a whiner, you know. Right. And Josh and I, we shared whiskey with them in their cook tent, toasted congratulations to them. Even though a couple things seemed really odd, but we, but basically, we were like, you know what, man, that those guys, hats off, man, badass. They right. got it. They got it first. We didn't. But right. you know, and that was an interesting time. I'm getting on a detour. I know, but but I remember they're sitting in base camp, and Josh and I are thinking. We're talking like, do we still want to climb this thing? And we both had this, you know, we were both like, yeah, you know what? We came here because this is a beautiful line and we want to climb this line. And, yeah, of course we have egos. We want it mm-hmm. to be first. Right. But that doesn't change the fact that we want to climb it. So we're going to give it our, our best and sure. try to climb it. And, uh, and we made this attempt and, you know, retreated just below the top. Um, and we thought, well, shit, you know, they're, they're better than we are, you know. And uh, <laughs> it turns out that that's... Certainly. Has that, anybody that climbed it? Not the North Since? Ridge. No. Oh, okay. No. Oh, right. So it's, yeah, it's and then one of the guys came yeah. clean, right? A yeah, yeah. The, the yeah. young guy, the young rope gun. That was right. where the things got a little weird. Or, well, that was one of several things that got a little mm-hmm. weird. He was real quiet. We we knew he was the rope gun of the team. He was real quiet when while the older guy was being the spray lord and kind of telling some conflicting stories and sure. stuff. And the, the young guy was just like silent the whole time. And then they got nominated for the PLA d'Or. And right before that happened he he came he, he like couldn't take it anymore and he like publicized this thing said you know we have no moral right to be among the right the nominees we you know here's what really happened yeah right so i mean so usually someone breaks during during when the yeah, lives there's nobody on. to break that's it well because because the thing is and actually i, I wanted to wrap this up but <laughs> yeah good luck with I, me right i keep no i keep wanting to go back because yeah. what 
so Faba, yeah, yeah, he didn't climb. Yeah. So is there a possibility that he is also of the you know I believe. I mean, because clearly yeah. he had hero worship to right. Maestro. Yes. He invited, yes. you know, yeah. this is yep. the greatest climb in the world. Right. I'm going to bring him here. Right. It, it's a possibility he's not in on it. It's possible. I, I, I'm suspicious of that. Right. I, I don't have any way of knowing for sure. Um, but, because it, because you were yeah. talking about the one guy cracking. And so yeah. in this situation, you've got they two guys to loyal crack. to the end. Fava died right. in, I think it was 2008. He never broke. He always faithfully stood by Maestri's story. Or a cynic could say, is Maestri and Fava, is there, what is it that they both have that's so important that they need to protect? Right. But, but what really went on? And that, Chris, this is where we get, Ooh. I'm glad you asked that, Chris. Yeah. That, that, because the question is, is what happened to Tony Egger? Right. What happened to Tony Egger? How did Tony... Uh, let's be I mean, blunt. We know he died. How did to- yeah, we know he died. How did Tony Egger die? Right. Because it, as I wrote about in the book, it did not... Ha- I, I don't know how he died, so I'm not casting blame, but it did not happen the way Maestri said. Right. And Tony Egger's... And Maestri and Fava went home, and they told a lie to Tony Egger's family about how their son died. Maybe it was just the idea of a glorious death. You know, I, I think we could sympathize with that. Sure, like the, the, the yeah. guy who dies in war. Right, and, and yeah. He died right. helping everybody. Absolutely. But. And we all know that after everyone dies, they're the greatest fucking person ever. I can't wait till I die. People are going to think I'm awesome, right? Everyone yeah, we'll talks see. about how great you are. Yeah, yeah we'll see. God damn it. <laughs> Anyway, uh, yeah, everyone's a, everyone's the greatest guy ever after right. they die, right? And uh, but yeah, it's um the the evidence found with um Eggers remains. Uh, it, it, it doesn't add up. No, to what it, it they does said. not add up. It right. does not add up. It, plus, plus his plus Maestri's story about how he died right. changed. Right, exactly, and that's one remaining mystery I really want to figure out. But you, it's in, you know, it's probably it's, impossible. It's probably impossible. Unless there's it's some deathbed confession. I would, yeah, unless there's a deathbed confession, or, or I, I wondered about those initial two reports out of Argentina that presented a, what, what from the outside would seem sl- no big deal, but to climbers, we all know the difference between being lowered and repelling. Mm-hmm. It's not a mis- it's not a mistake you would make. Right. You wouldn't be confused and think, "Oh, I was lowering my buddy." Or oh, wait, was he repelling? No, right. w- when he died. Right. No, um, I wanted to try to find the original documents that came out of Argentina, and uh, I ran into dead ends. That mm-hmm. they're probably gone. Uh-huh. But um, so I mean. To be scrupulous, as I've tried to be with my research, I mean, you got to do it both ways. You can't just be scrupulous when things fit what you right, want it right. to be, right? So, in fairness, I mean, there could have been the, the, it could have been, you know, there's all kinds of ways it could have happened. Anyone who's worked in media knows that this can happen. And in reporting, you know, maybe there was a relayer from the, you know, the Chalten Massif who, like, transmitted the story in the in the two different sources, one in the U.S. and one mm-hmm. in Argentina, actually came from that same erroneous initial source. I mean, that, that could have sure. happened. But, there, but that is but one of a myriad of, of things that simply do not add up. And that's part of why I think this matters. So you want to talk about why yeah, it matters. Yeah, that's my last question because yeah, we're getting on here. So, yes. yeah. So... You know, it's very, it's a, it's a f- sort of fun 
or useful caveat to, yeah. to talk about how climbing's not curing cancer and right. it's not all right. that important and we're all you know mostly a, a bunch of affluent white people that do it mm-hmm. and you know this and that and the other thing and i've used it on the enormous cows yeah. but at the same time i'm i'm also willing to go to the mat that somehow climbing is important mm-hmm. i don't know why but yeah. it is and uh and, and yeah. here's this you know again it's not a widely known story outside of climbing it may never be mm-hmm. oh, let's you know cross our fingers that that, it, that people get interested in it <laughs> by your book but i just um, want will ferrell to star in the movie yeah. he and danny mcbride <laughs> kenny powers <laughs> I want can, can I be can Kenny Powers play me? Yeah, in absolutely. The, okay. Yeah, you'll be the narrator. Um, he'll be the narrator. But yeah, so we've got this 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 thing that. Well, let me say this too. Like I can only imagine that in between fifty nine, then you get the thing in seventy, yep. and then even even Danini's thing. You know, five years later, he he him and his crew, uh, John Bragg, right? And, and Jay actually, Wilson, yep. Yeah, and those guys, and Bragg was pretty vocal about it too. Yep. It seems like those guys lob a shell into it, but it still doesn't affect. Right. And I just get this feeling that there's a point at which everybody was just kind of like, yeah, you yeah, know, whatever. like he's an it's old man now. Let's story. leave Let him it alone. Go. Even yeah, climbers, yeah. like, yeah, oh, let's, yeah. you know, right? And right. yet. It, yet it, it doesn't stay down. It's like, yeah. and then, you know, and then, I mean, I mean, other people had ventured up there before those guys did mm-hmm. the, uh, what is it, Viento, the the route that they did on the... Uh, El Arca de los yeah. Vientos. Yeah. You know, there and there's something about them mm-hmm. finding a, some mm-hmm. other team, yep. finding a piton. Right. So, yeah. but it was still bubbling there. Yeah, so, yeah. you know, obviously it does matter, but I think yeah. even climbers might right. be like, well... Why does this really matter? Who who cares, right? I mean, on the one hand, I I think just fundamentally the truth matters, and I don't think that really needs a whole lot of defending as a general principle. Um, People can disagree with me if they want, and and that's that's their prerogative. But I I do think the truth matters in Mm -hmm. a general sense. Also, the history of Serratore has been indelibly influenced by a lie, 1959, because right. that led to 1970, which was the compressed drop. Oh, this whole chain reaction of things it, uh, were influenced by a lie, which I think bears examination, because if you spread that concept out to larger society, what, do, do we want to live in a world where the truth doesn't matter? You'd say, okay, that's just climbing. Oh, all right, well, that's a mighty slippery slope to say that it's okay to lie in climbing, but not in other areas. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I guess I can see that. Like, oh, why don't you guys go and get get a real life? Okay, that that's that's fair enough. I've been told that plenty of times. This is a real um, life. I do think that this is the real life. <laughs> this is the don't real tell life. Me it's not. So we care about climbing. You know, passion matters. I mean, piano. I risked my life to be here tonight. You did. The driving was sketchy. <laughs> anyway. Piano. Play, right. People who I, I I've known people who play beautifully play the piano. I think that matters. I don't know shit about music, but that I think the passion in life matters. What, what your your job at the bank working working for some corporate criminals really fucking matters? No, it doesn't. I mean, so if we want to extend it, then nothing matters, right? right, and, right. And, I, I, and 
I'm not the nihilist. That <laughs> I was about Johnson. to say that. I was yeah, like, I know. like nice nihilist, weasel. Donnie. Um, but then, so, <laughs> so these are all like, these men are cowards, <laughs> Donnie. <laughs> so, so these are all kind of philosophical things that I think mm-hmm. we could probably talk in circles about, and I think it's interesting. There's one thing that I think where it absolutely does matter, and, and I will argue face to face with anyone who, who wants to challenge me on this, which is. I don't think it's okay to to go home and lie to a to a dead man's family. I don't think it's okay to allow this unexplained death. You know, Tony Egger did not die the way Maestri said he died. Tony Egger's sister, Stephanie, is still alive in Austria. She was a little girl when Maestri came home to to Italy and then visited Austria and came and visited the family and lied to their faces about how Edgar had died. She knew at the time, as a young girl, that it didn't happen that way. Ever since, she's known that it hasn't happened that the way they said. She's still waiting for an answer. Mm-hmm. The people in Italy who are defending Maestri, it, it, and Maestri himself, if he was this great, courageous climber, it takes a hell of a lot more courage to come out and come clean and go tell Stephanie Edgar how her brother died. Right takes a hell of a lot more courage to do that than it does any kind. I think, I think there's a demand for honesty there that actually does matter. Right. You know? It, and, and, and that's not the reason I like got into this book or whatever. I mean, I got into it for self-serving reasons because I thought it was an interesting story and I thought I wanted to write a book, which was a terrible idea because it was way too much work and I'm a little bit like the dude. I like my leisure time. Um, but, you know, so yeah, I got into it for self-serving reasons. And in the end, you know, there's this big fantasy about Saratori, about how it was climbed in 1959 that some people cling to. And they're, they're, they're clinging to have this relationship with a fantasy. And I, I, I have a lot more respect for those people who want to have a relationship with reality. And, and maybe fantasy and reality meet in, in my stupid little world as a little climber bum is that I have this like really weird fantasy that will never come true but it's a fantasy that that based out of this book and all this research and stuff that there will be enough pressure on Maestri that comes from all of this evidence that that finally he'll give Tony Egger's family an honest answer as to how he died mm-hmm. you know? so if someone wants to um, tell me that that doesn't matter I'll listen and we can debate that. So the book is The Tower. Check it out. Again, it, it, if you have an opinion about the chopping of the compressor route, which I think most everybody <laughs> well, I know did, then this is another piece of the puzzle. And, but. Yeah, and, I, and I'd like to think that my book is about quite a bit more than, than just what happened in... Well, if you like mountaineering literature and, and there's great photos and like all these rad dudes like you just talked Even about. Even if you I mean, can't read, the photos are yeah, pretty cool. Yeah, there's quite but a we few. are climbers, yeah. so our reading abilities are limited. All right, well, thanks for sitting down, Kelly. And thanks, hopefully dude. it'll be less than two years before you're back on the show. So. Yeah, man. Keep up the good work. I love the show. Thanks. All right, folks, thanks for listening. Thanks for being around. Thanks for getting on board for the fourth year of the Enormacast, the beginning of the fourth year. 
Listen, if you're just showing up or if you've been here for a while, there are ways to help out the EnormaCast. You can go to EnormaCast.com and click on the Help Out tab and do what it takes to keep this thing rolling, making it more popular and therefore more valuable. And also, make sure and tell your friends. There are climbers out there that have not heard this. I know it's hard to believe. So hard to believe. But yeah, tell your friends about the normal cast. Make them listen. Shove it in their heads. Okay. Thanks, you guys. Happy New Year. Check your knot. And if you uh, happen to be at the URA Ice Fest in a couple days, look around. I'm going to be there. Come say hi. Yeah, John Bouchard in New Hampshire, for yeah. example, you know? <laughs> when you got New England, it's the greatest climbing mountainous state in the whole entire world. Right. It's, you know, I mean, first ascent of Black Dyke, Marty, that was the greatest ascent in the history of climbing. Are you aware of that?